Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you? Good. I just came from the gym and there are a whole bunch of NBA players from a team that I have no idea about training in the gym. And I was like, man, this is wasted on me. I wish Ben was here. But I thought you were a big basketball fan now. I'm so confused. You're, you're just taking me on an emotional roller coaster here with you, you, you and your connection to basketball. There we go. <laughs> So this week, I wrote about nominally about Facebook. That was certainly the framing. There was a speech that Mark Zuckerberg gave last week that we may get into a bit. But there was one line in that speech that I thought was very interesting. It really made me sort of think a lot. And it sort of tied into the China stuff as well, which has very much been top of mind as things that I've been thinking about. And so I kind of wanted to catch that one line and sort of write about that. And so I wrote something this week that was sort of a little more expansive, a little more sort of looking both backwards and forwards that, again, is nominally about Facebook, but isn't really about Facebook at all. It's about something almost even much bigger than Facebook, if that makes sense. There's something bigger than Facebook? Well, it's interesting, actually. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was in Congress today. We were just sort of talking about this before we started the podcast. And it's so funny, like some of these questions and back and forths, there's these fundamental trade-offs that you get stuck in. It's like, wait, guys, hold on. It's great. You're all trying to sort of score political points here. But if you actually zoom out to a higher level, like there's actually completely unmade points that are actually bigger than the ones you're making. And it's like, you know, you find these trade-offs. Facebook has these trade-offs that puts Zuckerberg in sort of an impossible position to sort of answer the question, right? If you frame it just right. And it's like, yeah, I just scored a political point. I got a gotcha. And it's like, okay, that's great. You got a gotcha. Congratulations. But like you didn't really acknowledge or make clear what the trade-off is. And that's, you know, almost sort of like, misinformation in its own right. But the worst part of it is, is not just that it's kind of like a little dishonest that you're not pointing out there's a real trade-off here, but if you actually zoom out and examine why is there a trade-off here? What entailed the creation of this trade-off is like, oh, wait, there's actually a much bigger problem here that is larger than Facebook. Go on. Well, let's get to it. That's the taste of the thing where we can end up in the end. In many respects, there was sort of two parts to what I wrote this week, because I did write this sort of big picture contextual article on Monday. And then Tuesday, I wrote about Zuckerberg's speech specifically. And sort of at the end of that, I made some of these points that I'm referring to. So maybe we can get to that by the end of the podcast. Sounds good. So the line in Zuckerberg's speech from last week that I sort of triggered on, I'm going to go ahead and read sort of the whole paragraph. I think it's interesting. And I think, you know, the line is the fifth estate. You'll hear it as I read. So here we go. Quote, this is Mark Zuckerberg. People having the power to express themselves at scale is a new kind of force in the world, a fifth estate alongside the other power structures of society. People no longer have to rely on traditional gatekeepers in politics or media to make their voices heard, and that has important consequences. I understand the concerns about how tech platforms have centralized power, but I actually believe the much bigger story is how much these platforms have decentralized power by putting it directly into people's hands. It's part of this amazing expansion of voice through law, culture, and technology. Sounds great. (laughs) Or is it? (laughs) I mean, this point about the fifth estate is clearly a reference to the fourth estate. The fourth estate is sort of the press, right? The idea was the press holds the government responsible. What's interesting is that what the first three estates are actually sort of differs based on where you're from. So being in the U.S., we always sort of heard the three estates were the three branches of government, which is the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And then journalism was the fourth branch or the fourth estate. And basically its job was to hold the other three accountable or in sort of a more conspiracy theory view was actually a tool of the government to sort of bring people along with the government. So that's where if it's fourth branch, that's usually more the conspiracy mindsets. If it's fourth estate, that was more the sort of accountability mindsets. But the point is it being the first three were the branches of government. And the overall idea was it's government versus the media and the media helps keep government accountable. 
Makes sense. So I don't know what it is in Australia, but, you know, looking this up more in sort of the European context is actually the first three estates were actually a reference to the medieval period for the, the Middle Ages, where the three estates of society, like how society was organized, the first estate was the clergy slash the church, the Catholic church, of course. The second estate was the nobility. And the third estate were sort of the commoners, the peasants. It also tended to include sort of the merchant class. Sometimes there was in the Middle Ages, it was called four estates, you know, where the merchants were sort of an extra state in there. But the idea is those were the three estates. And then the fourth estate, what's interesting, and this is where it it's a little confusing, is the term fourth estate was coined by Edmund Burke in sort of the late 1700s. And in that case, he was referring, oh, you know, the three estates was already sort of this idea in sort of the European mindset, even though the three estates had sort of faded away, because obviously we were well into the Enlightenment, the Middle Ages, the formation of nation states. And in England, for example, Burke was a member of the House of Commons, which is a reference to that original third estate. There was also the House of Lords, which was a reference to sort of the second estate. And there's also the King this sort of centralized power that was, you know, much more along the lines of the first estate. And he's like, oh, look at the press up there. That's a fourth estate. And so in, in his context, if you back up, it's actually the same as the American context where the press is sort of counter to the government. But the reference to the fourth estate was actually a reference back hundreds of years to the Middle Ages. So it's kind of convoluted, especially because back in the Middle Ages, you know, there was no press because there was no printing press Quite literally. Right. So do you have this term in Australia, the fourth estate, the fourth branch on those lines? We do. We've inherited a lot of the British system. Like all legislation goes in front of the governor general, who's a representative of the queen. So the breakup is actually very similar to the way it is in the United Kingdom. But the first estate aspect of this is mostly a figurehead. And we have our legislative and our executive branches by American standards that collapsed. So the prime minister, is a member of the House of Representatives and he's the leader of a political party and he forms government and pulls people into his cabinet who've also been elected. Right. But when you hear the term fourth estate in Australia, it's the same thing where press is the sort of the counter of the government, right? Yes, correct. So in this case, you know, sort of Zuckerberg's framing of social media as like a fifth estate makes a lot of sense, right? So you have sort of government, even though it's fifth, it's actually three, right? You have the government and then you have the media. And now you have this new thing, which is sort of a platform for everyone else. And so it's a framing that makes sense. It made sense in the context of the speech. And yeah, I mean, like, it makes sense. What I thought was interesting, though, was what if you actually went back and thought about what those estates go back to the Middle Ages, right? So leave behind the press, leave behind Burke, leave behind the US, leave behind the New World, leave behind Australia, and actually go back to the Middle Ages, where there actually were three estates, and where it defined sort of what society was. And in this context, where would you place the printing press, right? Because what's interesting, the reason why I thought of this was the third estate was the commons, and the fifth estate is giving the commons a voice. It's like, wait, we already have a commons, right? So why do we need it two times, right? And so I'm like, where did the printing press fit in this? I'm like, oh, the printing press was actually a point of leverage for a shift of power from the first estate to the second estate. And so you think about it, that's what really happened in Europe in the period after the Middle Ages. You had the situation where Europe was very sort of scattered, mostly sort of city-states to an extent, you know, I think France and England were earlier to have more of a sense of a nation-state, but even then, not nearly close to the borders that they were today, and they varied and went back and forth. Italy and Germany, meanwhile, were almost completely sort of city-states that weren't necessarily unified at all. And 
over it all, a sort of umbrella organization or organizing force was the Catholic Church. And they had sort of, at least theoretically, sort of the ultimate power. And obviously, there was push and pull between where the power, how local it was, how centralized it was, and that would go back and forth over time. But by and large, that was sort of the structure of the Middle Ages. And the printing press was critical to fundamentally changing and undoing the structure. And it was critical for interesting reasons that very much are sort of in the sort of strategy exploit a wheelhouse, which is you get into the fundamental economics of how printing press works. A printing press, you have to actually pay to build the printing press. Once you get an immovable type, you have to go up and actually set up the plates and put in the letters and all that sort of stuff. Get the right metallurgy for both the metal, get the right mixture for the ink, all that sort of stuff. And then you print something. You can print the same thing multiple times. And this is the critical point. The book has relatively low marginal costs, right? Because once you get everything set up, the more copies of a book you can sort of print out, the more you can get your money back on that investment up front. because by selling all these books, because each additional book doesn't cost very much to produce. It has a relatively low marginal cost. And so the question is, how do you actually print the most possible books per run? Well, what you want to do is you want to find a language that the most people can read, right? And so you had all these city-states that had different dialects and different variations in Germany and Italy and even France and England and along these lines and all the countries in Europe. And what happened was because the economic motivation was to find the most standard dialect, the one that the most people could read and understand, you would start there. And then the motivation broadly was to understand that language so you could read all the books. And so you started getting a feedback loop that really sort of standardized language into sort of distinct different groups or distinct different languages. And then meanwhile, what happens? You have all these people that are now sort of speaking the same language, reading all the same books, reading all the same books. You get much more of a cultural affinity. You get much more of a connection going on. And in the long run, the sort of economics of the printing press led to the nation state as a whole, where so France, again, France and England were quicker to this, becoming much more defined sort of entities. But over time, Italy, sort of the city states united. I think it was early in the 1800s. Germany, I think, was the last one. It was over 1870s or something like that, where Germany sort of unified into being one larger entity. But if you back up and zoom out from like the 100 year perspective, this was driven by a technological change, which was the introduction of the printing press. And now no longer the Catholic Church still existed, but the Catholic Church was not the power in these countries. The Catholic Church was reduced in its sort of stature, and the power became the national governments. And the national governments, which I sort of labeled as a new sort of nobility. In some respects, it was people who were born into it. In other respects, like someone like Edmund Burke, Edmund Burke was born a commoner, but he became a member of the House of Commons, a sort of much more meritocratic sort of nobility, but nobility nonetheless, the sort of elites, I think is what we would call them today. And again, all driven by this technological interest of the printing press. So you said that there were two terms for the press. One was the fourth estate and then the uh, conspiracy theorists who believe that the government is using the press to prop them up. I think that they would quite enjoy your description of that because it feels like you're basically making the case that the press is basically what enabled the governments to arise in medieval Europe. Absolutely. And that's part of the point is I think actually if you use the European, the medieval formulations of the estates, then the press is very much a part of the second estate. There is a symbiotic relationship between the rise of the elite 
and the rise of the printing press. And they fed each other and created conditions for each other to thrive and to exist. And that's the world that we've largely lived in and all of most of history that we know, right? I mean, most people, when they know of history, it's mostly in the last three to 400 years, you know? I mean, maybe I'm being generous, but that's the history that they know. And the water we swim in, right, is this world of nation states. And the assumption is that nation states is the normal state of affairs. This is the way things are organized. Religion is subservient largely to the state. But that was not the reality of the world for a very, very, very long time before that. The religion was, uh, what's the other subservient? Super servient? Um, it was higher level. Did it control day-to-day life? Not necessarily. It certainly did in terms of like, you know, culture and the way people acted. But the Catholic Church wasn't telling people to do it on a day-to-day sort of basis. It was a much higher level. But at the same time, it was sort of above these sort of city-state entities. And that was fundamentally changed. But this notion is the press is a tool, and we're talking about the printing press, but it's basically, it extends through to the press today. It's a tool of the nobility. It's a tool of the second estate. It's what allowed them to come to power. Yeah, I would just push back into the word tool, because I don't think this is an explicit leveraging of the nobility. I think they're manifestations of the same thing. Like, the press was driven, this concept was driven by the fundamental economics of how this worked, which is that it was, we've talked about this on Stratechery a ton, right? Why were newspapers so profitable? Well, because it took a lot of fixed costs to sort of set the printing presses, get the delivery trucks, build up the advertising network, all that sort of stuff. And then there was basically negligible marginal costs on the back end. So you could sort of cover a geographic area. You would tend towards sort of a monopoly or oligopolic coverage of that area. And you, meanwhile, you have a few newspapers in the area. The newspapers cover the most prominent candidates or they cover the political parties or whoever sort of put forward. And the political parties have to get donations and get donors to prop up the best people. And it's a feedback relationship. And so the only thing push back on his tool because I don't think there was people pulling the strings here. It's just they were fully sort of intertwined into one system. But the nature of it also, and I think back to the conversation we had about radio versus podcasts, it also tended to converge on the middle. It tended to want to create something that was digestible by as many people as possible in that geographic area, which is distinct from, again, newspapers are like that and radios like that. But that's distinct how you think about the internet and podcasts, which much lend themselves because the addressable market is global, lends itself much more to finding niches all over the place. That's right. That's right. So hold that last thought for a second. We'll get to the internet in a moment. But just to double down on your point about being towards the middle, again, it's an economic argument because if you're putting in a lot of fixed costs up front, you want to get the maximum spread on the back end so you can spread out your costs over the things. So middle is the best place to be because you can reach the most people. And just to really emphasize this point that this isn't just a government and a newspaper thing. This is CPG companies. CPG is trying to serve the maximum number of people. It's car companies reach the maximum number of people. It's like all the these bits and pieces of the modern economy were all geared towards high upfront fixed costs, low back and marginal costs, serve the median consumer and spread out your fixed costs over as many people as you can. Right. Why well, I couldn't buy Mac software when I walked to the store. There's something about the nature of this conversation where you drew that parallel, where this notion of the economics was driving a convergence in the center that just clicked for me. And I think I, I mean, I really enjoyed your article, but I think I just further internalized it in a way that I had not. 
Right. And this is where you think about what the internet means and what it means, not just in this sort of narrow sense, like how is publishing disrupted or how is CPG disrupted, but from a macro multi hundred year sense, what are the implications of this? What's the implications of, again, to use Zuckerberg's words, that people having the power to express themselves at scale is a new kind of force in the world. If you go back to that framing, that sort of clergy, nobility, commons sort of framing, and if you accept the idea that the printing press enabled the second estate to sort of overtake the first estate and to create this world of elites, which is the world that we live in. What Zuckerberg is saying here is that social media, and you know, we'll get into the frustrations with Zuckerberg and that he makes Facebook into being all social media and Facebook into being all the internet. This is really an internet issue. Facebook is one of the manifestations of this, but this is an internet issue, is that the internet enables anyone to sort of have that voice, which means the internet is enabling the third estate. And why is this happening? Again, it's an economic issue. So the printing press, high fixed costs, low marginal costs, right? And so you were motivated to have the centralizing aspect. The internet is not just low marginal costs, it's zero marginal costs. But what really matters here is the production side. The production of content is now basically zero cost as well. Anyone can go out and set up a website and reach anyone in the world. You don't have to buy a printing press. You don't have to go and rent time on a press or whatever it might be. And to be fair, Facebook lowers this even more because you can literally just walk up with an email address and then post. And that post can be available to the entire world or Twitter or whatever other platform we might want to use. And so, again, what's the implications then now? It's not just the back end that has low marginal cost. The front end has low marginal cost as well. And so the point of this sort of back up and think about, okay, we already saw what happened because the economics of the printing press and how that changed the structure of society. What happens when you change the economics again, not just on the back end, but on the front end? All those things that used to effectively be centralizing forces inside of society are being superseded by something that encourages you to like pursue niches, right? Yeah, that's right. Because the economics started to get really sort of wacky. In a world where anyone can produce anything, by definition, people have a lot more choice in the world. Like one of the defining characteristics of the second estate world. I mean, it's interesting. I've written about this previously. I wrote this article called TV Advertising Surprising Strength and Inevitable Fall in 2016. And I sort of called it the post-war economy, this idea. The point of that is that TV advertising and car companies and CPG companies and beer company, like they're all interconnected and they're all sort of predicated on on this reaching the lowest common denominator, the mass middle sort of idea, because they're so interconnected, they will actually prop each other up longer than we think they will. But when they go down, they're sort of going to go all down together, right? You know, the old quote, how did you go bankrupt? You know, very slowly and then very quickly. And that's, I think, what's going to happen in that order. But the actual proper term for it is not the post-war order. It's like the second estate order, right? It's like this idea of the elites and the elites being fully intertwined from business to government to media is all interconnected and they're all pulling in the same direction, not because someone's in the middle organizing this, but because the economics of all of everything that that goes on is aligned in this sort of direction, right? But what happens when the economics change? Well, we've talked about this in a micro sense with like Stratechery, right? Why does Stratechery succeed? Because to your point, you said this a little bit ago, the entire world is my addressable market. And I just need to pick out a few people in lots of different countries. The Stratechery is in like 85, 90 countries or something like that. 
that. And I can cobble that together into a great business. But that by definition means I'm not pursuing the middle. Like one of the big challenges is checkery that it's almost become more challenging over time is I have some people that reach checkery every day for five or six years and other people that are stumbling upon an article for the first time, right? How do you write for someone that's reading it for the first time while also being appealing to someone that's, you know, read everything else that I've written? It's a super hard challenge. Why? Because the deeper you get into a niche, the more focus you get, the more sort of intractable and hard to understand it is for someone coming at it from the outside. So it's a real trade-off. Do you want to reach a lot of people or do you want to get deeper and deeper into a specific area? And the fact of the matter is the economics drive you to get deeper and deeper and deeper because that's how you maximize sort of your revenue because people will pay and care a lot about stuff that is deeply meaningful to them and they will not care or pay anything for stuff that's only marginally meaningful to them. Right. Again, one of these things, and maybe this is obvious to everybody who's listening and obvious to you, but it kind of struck me as you were describing that, that 20 years ago, there would be a limited number of things that if someone wanted to turn on on the radio, they could listen to. And that gave everybody a common basis. They might not agree with everything, but it kind of provided a common basis for like political discourse. And we've been doing this podcast for a while and we have a listening, but it's crazy to me that that notion of the common basis from which people are listening and gathering information and then making decisions. How many podcasts must there be like this one where people are just in their world and they've been following you for six years. They've been listening along to us for 170, whatever it's been episodes. And they're in one world versus someone who's been listening to some other podcast. And there are a bunch of other ones completely in a different world. Whereas before the extent to which you could opt into that choice of news source and have almost a completely different version of reality, like a completely different experience, like that really wasn't open to you before. And on one hand, it's awesome. Like we found each other on the internet. I have learned so much as a result of doing this. But on the other hand, like you can see everything we've gone through the past few years, the benefits of having that centralizing force. And when it goes away, the effects that it wreaks on society. We talked about this in a podcast a few weeks ago, right? It's great that you can find a community. We can find a community of people that love strategy and technology. You can also find a community of people that are into the most horrific sort of content possible or people that are into white nationalism or into terrorism or violence or whatever that sort of thing might be. Like it's a deeply sort of unsettling reality. And it's also a sort of inescapable one, right? I think it was about in 1587 or something like that. There was a papal bull that dictated that everything that was printed had to be approved by the church. It didn't work. It was a little bit too late. The cat was out of the bag. The printing press had started to spread. And it became one of those things where to have books on the band list, which the Catholic church maintained for a very long time, was to make that book. <laughs> Printers learned, do extra copies because it's going to get very popular. Streisand effect. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. 500 years earlier. I think that's quite clearly sort of the case, or maybe it's the case of the internet. And this is where you get into lots of interesting questions and trade-offs, which is, one, if you back up, we're driving towards this world. You know, if you follow my framework, where the first estate was replaced by the second state, and the second estate is going to replace by the third estate. The implications of that are not just sort of a who has power. It's the very way we organize ourselves as a society. We're going to go from an umbrella 
entity like the Catholic Church with a lot of small city states to nation states. And where do we go next? Do we go back to that sort of structure? These sort of smaller entities with large sort of organizations tying together? Is that something that makes sense going forward? There's certainly something to that. I could see the sort of people reorganizing themselves. You already see this online, right? You see people organizing themselves into communities, as we've talked about. Is that going to start spilling over into the physical world where people start organizing themselves physically? You certainly see this in the political polarization in the U.S., for example, where different parts of the country have distinct sort of political preferences. And are there people there that think differently, that have a different one? Yes. Do they increasingly feel it's difficult to speak up about that? Probably. And again, this this cuts both ways. So this is not a partisan statement. You know, if you're in the middle of Trump country, being a Democrat is probably just as difficult as being in San Francisco and supporting Trump. I mean, it's almost like it's completely two different worlds where this happened first online and now it's spilling over into an offline world. And how is this going to play out over the next 50, 100 years? It's very hard to imagine that we're going to stay exactly as we are without further transformations when you think back to what happened the last time we went through something like this. The thing to think about, though, and this is where it ties into the China discussion that we've had, is that China has actually, in many respects, like that is one way to go with this. We talked about before that the agreements and free trade and that sort of thing that we've built with China end up being sort of a two-way street where we thought we were going to export liberal values to China. It turned out they were going to export authoritarian values to us via these economic bridges that we constructed. And there's a similar sort of way you can think about this question of building a direct connection to the common man. The direct connections that China has via online, via social media actually allows them to exert more authority from a sort of nation state perspective onto the population. Does this mean that China is sort of like governing the day-to-day activities of people? No, no, not at all. I think the analogy is, and uh, there's this article is actually written 10, 15 years ago, this idea that the way to think about the China censorship apparatus is that it's the anaconda in the chandelier. And the idea is that it's not that people are being frog marched about what they should do on a day-to-day life. No, not at all. It's that people are cognizant that there's always the possibility of being caught. There's always the possibility that they're being watched. And this engenders a tremendous amount of self-censorship of you changing what you say, being very aware to not cross the line. And it turns out that the anaconda ends up not having to do very much at all. It just needs to occasionally make an example of the right sort of folks, which I think we've seen over the last little bit. And we talked about this, right? Every U.S. company saw what went on with the NBA. And yes, to some extent, the NBA sort of stood up for itself. But the lesson that was taken away from everyone else that interacted with China is don't breathe a word about Hong Kong, right? Like, what other takeaway is there? Because they anaconda is going to strike. And sure, you might win a battle with the anaconda, but the fact of the matter is that battle will be very costly at best, or at worst, you're going to get slaughtered. And so you impose the censorship on sort of yourself. And why is this possible on sort of a mass market basis? Because of technology. Technology makes it possible to not just have the old, you know, Maoist people spying on each other and listening through windows and reporting someone to sort of earn political points. There's no need for any of that. Because you can monitor WeChat, you can monitor Weibo, you can monitor all the sort of comings and goings, and you can turn the dials. Oh, people tell this too much, tamp it down. We're going to censor it out. And people end up in competitions to prove how nationalist they are or how loyal they are, which has actually probably led to this NBA stuff. Like It probably sort of spiraled out of control, in part because people were so eager to prove to the anaconda that, oh, look at me, I'm so nationalistic. And so that's one way this could go, where it doesn't empower the commons, it enslaves the commons. 
Right. It's difficult for me to hear what you just described and not think about China's very strategic decision not to allow any non-Chinese social media companies to operate within China. But again, the West is not doing that. And inevitably, it's not just the NBA that's experiencing some of that because like that's at the business level. Like if you're a business, don't breathe a word about China or don't breathe a word about Hong Kong because there'll be a cost. But the mechanism that they have on an even more micro scale, which is for individuals, is baked into the social media tools that grow up in China. And when you can't use Facebook in China, but you can use TikTok in the US. And again, just the notion of how that enslaving is potentially able to be exported is a scary thought. Well, it is very scary to in sort of this is the American context with our social networks. What I'm driving at here is, you know, one of the reasons why Zuckerberg gave this speech about free expression or whatever lofty title that actually the title kind of cracks me up. I'm going to click to the Facebook page. Mark Zuckerberg stands for voice and free expression. Just a classic Facebook title right there. Uh, But is this sort of ongoing question about politician speech online or on Facebook specifically, whether it be posts or whether it be ads. And Facebook's thing is like, look, you can't incite violence. You can't do voter suppression, but everything else is basically fair game. We're not going to police it. And understandably, there's been a lot of pushback about this because, oh, you're going to let people actually say things that aren't true. And, you know, in one respect, it's like, how is that possible? How could you allow that? But this is actually a useful way to think about what the problems are. Like these channels, these direct connections to normal everyday people is tremendously powerful and just sort of racked with potential misuse. And we've seen an extreme version of in China, but this idea that the company with a direct connection to people ought to be making any sort of decisions about political speech at a minimum. I'm not saying you have to agree with Facebook's decision, but if you can at least see and acknowledge the very real trade-off and the very real issues at hand here, I'm going to suggest you might not have fully thought through this question. It is not black and white by any means. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you got me over the line on this years ago when you're like, you want to create all this centralized power. You are doing that with the assumption that you're always the one in control of it. What happens if someone ends up in the White House that you don't like and you've given them all this power? And sure enough, that happens. So I've been converted to your doctrine, but yes. I wasn't meaning to bring that up. I I, I had no thought of bringing that up. You brought that up yourself, just to be clear. (laughs) No, I'm happy to acknowledge when you're right about this stuff. But that's actually an interesting point right there, the one you just sort of made. I mean, certainly on a governmental level, there's a structural issue here. And you go back and this sort of to get into what I would think is a much more solid critique of Zuckerberg's speech specifically and of sort of Facebook broadly. Like, again, I find it immensely frustrating that one, people don't seem to see these trade-offs or two, even if they do, they're like, again, going back to that hearing with Zuckerberg yesterday, this idea of getting gotcha questions, right? It's very trivial. If there is a massive trade-off, it is trivial to construct a gotcha question for Mark Zuckerberg that makes him appear to favor one side or the other when the reality is he's stuck in a trade-off, right? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, though, like, I'm not going to feel too sorry for him when I almost feel like how many billions of dollars is he worth on the back of the fact that everything's been reduced down to sound bites, And the thing that the algorithm that is powering Facebook is basically created a world in which that's what we've been reduced to. We've been reduced to 
like who gets the gotcha question because the gotcha question is the thing that gets shared on Facebook, the thing that gets shared on social media, that gets all the engagement. I mean, I totally hear you. I don't want to dismiss the point. At the same time, it's hard for me to feel too sorry for him. This feels like a bed of his own making. Of course. No, that's the point I'm actually trying to drive at, right? Like we can go back and forth about what the trade-offs here. The problem is what is the structure that led to these trade-offs existing in the first place? And here, I think actually going back to the point about like the president and the government structure is an illuminative one. So we'll come back to Facebook in a moment, but if I can do another sort of history lesson, you know, you talk about the U.S., you know, free expression. And it's like this whole debate about free expression in the context of the U.S. government is kind of a moot one because we have the First Amendment, right? That's sort of the common, you know, everyone talks about that. Like it's decided. And the whole point is what are private companies going to do? Private companies, of course, do not have to follow the First Amendment. But at the same time, there is certainly the broader values and a very strong sort of American culture is that it is something that's important and, and worth valuing. But the point is the government, the government itself is very much sort of restricted by the First Amendment. One thing that was super important to the folks that wrote the Constitution is that laws are insufficient. That's not enough. To limit tyranny. And I wrote all this week, if you go back to Federalist 47, which is written by James Madison, who authored a good portion of the Constitution, and I'm going to quote again, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced to be the very definition of tyranny. And the idea of this is, it doesn't matter if you have laws that value free expression, if the mechanism of enforcement for those laws does not itself have safeguards in place, like the laws don't matter, right? So the values of free expression in America are not just a function of having laws that guarantee free expression. It's a function of having a government structure that is limited in this sort of tyranny it can impose. This is one of the great, great strengths of the U.S. government that, frankly, the last three years, I think, have really emphasized the fact that of all wealth been put together, you have trade-offs between the federal government and the state governments, right? There's push and pull there. You have trade-offs between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. Like how many court cases have there been overruling things that Trump has done? And those are enforced by things that he can't necessarily control. And imagine if we had a parliamentary sort of system where Trump could do whatever he wanted without having congressional pushback, right? And people complain about this because, oh, it's so hard to get stuff done because you have to get the president on board and you have to get Congress on board and you have to make sure that it's constitutional and then you have to get the states to implement it and people despair at how difficult it is to get things done. That's by design, right? Because what were the founding fathers actually concerned about? They were not concerned about getting stuff done. They were concerned about tyranny, about having someone come along that could ignore the laws by virtue of consolidating power. And so when you talk about the free speech tradition, you talk about the value of free expression in America, which yes, America is way on the extreme. It's very different than the rest of the world, but I'm coming at this as an American, just to be super duper clear, you know, that is written into our government, again, not just by law, but by the very structure of the way we sort of put this country together. And again, I'm not defending the founding fathers, tons of flaws. It's an extremely flawed document. I'm not sort of absolutist on this point. Just this narrow point that this idea of free expression, it's not just about the First Amendment, it's about structure too. So you know where I can tell you that these kind of principles are not written into Facebook's corporate structure. That's exactly right. And that's where I sort of draw the line about, you know, Zuckerberg, some great defender of sort of free expression. And it gives me tremendous pause. I actually thought his speech last week was quite good. You know, it was 
almost humorous to sort of watch the reactions because it felt like the vast majority of reactions were pre-formulated and pre-written. And I think that this aspect of what's this tension between the media and Facebook part, it's a business model question. Part of it is this estate question, right? Like it really is the estates are being undone. There are no more gatekeepers. The media does not have control of the narrative. But at the same time, a real hang up I have with Facebook broadly and Zuckerberg specifically being some sort of champion of free expression is the complete and utter lack of accountability. Like Zuckerberg answers to no one. He doesn't answer to his board. He doesn't answer to his shareholders. He answers to himself and that's it. And to my mind, you can say the words, you can have the bylaws, you can have the culture of free expression, but if you don't have the structure of free expression, it's hard for me to say you're truly a champion of it. I really appreciate that framing. I would absolutely tend to agree. Just in more recent history, in terms of your term strategy credit, it feels like he's cashing in on the ultimate strategy credit because it feels like it was just yesterday that he was banging down the door to get into China and he didn't successfully manage it. And the tide is kind of turning in the political sphere in the US. And now it's looking like there's antitrust that could potentially be leveraged against Facebook. And all of a sudden, he's like embracing this free expression. I get a little frustrated when I hear him talk because he loves to use this lofty language, but he uses the lofty language and you double click on exactly what he means. It's like, I don't think I have a problem with anyone posting whatever they want on Facebook. It's the amplification and the way that the algorithm works and that it picks out the thing that gets the most intense reaction. That's not free speech and that's never been free in the past. Like, like it all gets collapsed under this flowery language and these concepts. And it's like, when he uses terms like that, I really feel like you have to pay attention. And it's like, is that what you're really saying? Or are you trying to use language that covers up what's going on? I think it's a touch too cynical. I would go back, let's go to Apple, right? Like another example. I coined the term strategy credit in the context of Apple and privacy. And this was around the Snowden revelations where Apple was out there saying, you know, we don't keep any data. So it was impossible for this sort of apply to us. It's like, well, yeah, because your business doesn't depend on data at all. And they actually keep much more data today than they did back then, but whatever. And my point there was that I'm not trying to be cynical. To say something is a strategy credit is not to diminish the idea that they genuinely do believe this and hold it to be true. It's just to point out that there's no trade-offs here. It's one thing to stand your principle when there are no costs. Like, great, I appreciate the principle, but if there's no costs, it's a little bit less impressive to me, right? Again, but let me be clear though, there's a balance here. I think it would have been overly cynical to say that Apple doesn't care about privacy because there's no cost to it. Do you hear what I'm saying here? Like, I think actually Apple did care about privacy. It's just worth pointing out before we praise them too much, they're not, it's not really costing them anything. And I think it applies here. I think Facebook does care about free expression. I think Mark Zuckerberg does care about free expression. And I think it's a little cynical to suggest that he doesn't and that it's a mere strategy credit. Does that make sense? At the same time, it absolutely is a strategy credit, right? It's like Facebook. Facebook and Apple are like the polar opposites on this stuff. Like they're two sides of the same coin. Like, and it's funny that this China issue like really has highlighted that to a degree where Apple is stuck in the vice, right? There's in an impossible trade-off and there's really no right way to go in either direction. And in the same thing with Apple, to say that actually, oh, Apple doesn't care about privacy, look in China, that's also unfair, right? There's room here to not be completely cynical and to be appreciative that like, look, life's great. It's complicated. It's hard. So let's not praise Apple too much 
five years ago. And let's not criticize them too much here because it's actually really complicated. And I think the same thing applies to Facebook. Maybe for you, it's the opposite, right? Facebook does deserve some bit of praise, right? Like they have a policy where they don't put data centers in countries that are not democracies. That's a great policy. And we should have room to say that's a great policy, even as we acknowledge like, well, yeah, you weren't allowed in China. You wouldn't have that policy if you were in China, right? Like, does that make sense? It's so easy as critics to go into these absolutist ideas when all of us would be better served by appreciating how complicated the world is and not get too high and not get too low. I hear you. And I don't like generally being an absolutist, but there's something you said earlier about principles. I feel like when there are no trade-offs involved, they end up being the nice thing that adorns the wall of places like Enron. The thing that makes principles principles is when there's a cost involved and people stick with them anyway. Like They only mean something if you stick by them when they're inconvenient. And I guess like the arc of this podcast, it's been me getting slowly a little bit more disillusioned with tech. And it definitely started off with Facebook. But again, I felt like Apple, they would stick with the principle when it was inconvenient. Yes, it's an impossible choice, but they still had to make a choice. And they did. Like last episode got a bit disappointed. Facebook, I agree with you. The policy. Of- well, it's funny. It's like, arguably, if you're going to use that standard, then Facebook ranks above Apple because <laughs> at least they never actually violated the free expression principle. They perhaps theoretically tried to, but they were unable to get there. Did you see what I mean? Right. The implication of you actually putting it down to did they violate the principle or not puts Facebook above Apple in the moral calculus. And I don't think you feel that. Maybe you do. I mean, but I think actually they're probably more alike than any of us want to admit. If Facebook was in Apple's position, they would probably violate the moral principle just as Apple did. And I'm not going to sit here and say either one is sort of better than the other just because Facebook was fortunate enough to not get into China. Do you see what I mean? And so I almost think you're being a little, if I can push back on you a little bit, a little too, dare I say, moralistic about this point when it's very much a there but for the grace of God go I sort of scenario. Right. I will say that intent does matter. Like way back when, when Google just pulled up at stumps and went home from China, like give that a lot of credit. That was a bold, principled decision. It's right. In this calculus, Google comes out significantly ahead of everyone else. Right. And Apple in staring down the face of the US government back in 2016 with San Bernardino, that gets them lots of credit. And it felt like that was a principle and it was inconvenient at the time, but they stuck by it. And I guess- We could argue that Facebook with this policy around politicians- is doing the same thing, right? Like they're getting tons and tons of criticism because they are standing by free expression. And I think there are real costs to it, right? They could just not do any political advertising at all. They could they could go along and do fact check those ads. Yeah, the last few weeks, I would say the tables have turned. I tend to agree, like that is a principled stance. They're getting lots of crap for it, but I'm with you. I don't want Facebook putting its thumb on the scales. And at the same time, like that decision by Apple to pull that app from Hong Kong, like not just Hong Kong, that Hong Kong app from the App Store globally feels very disappointing. This, though, gets at the broader point, right? I've been sort of been a little bit of a cat with the ball with you right here, sort of bouncing you around saying, well, if you think this, what about this? This, what about that? Like, I've been playing gotcha with you a little bit over the last five to 10 minutes, which gets to the broader point. Like, the question is, if we're stuck in a game of gotcha, if we're stuck with sort of fundamental trade-offs, then I think we need to step back. We need to take a higher level view and think about structure. Maybe there is actual structural issues. If we are in impossible trade-offs, there might be something broader going on. The China stuff has really made me think about, like, is the issue with China the decision to censor 
Or is it that the apparatus to censor exists in the first place? And you think about it in this context of Facebook, is the issue with Facebook, like the reality is, is Facebook's power is immense. Facebook does have the potential to sort of put its foot on the scale, to your point. And I do tend to come down on, I would prefer them to not put their foot on the scale while acknowledging the massive problems and trade-offs that come from that happening. I do think the fact that we can push back and expose politician lies is some sort of countermeasure. The fact that Facebook has been pressured into making all advertisements available to anyone. And it's funny because Facebook gets a constant drum of negative news stories because people say, look at this advertisement, someone's running in wherever, and it's a really bad advertisement, right? Well, the fact that that story exists is because Facebook built the transparency tools so you could search for any ad. Now, again, bit of a strategy credit, Facebook did it under tremendous pressure. Like they didn't necessarily come up with that idea on their own. But the fact is, because that tool exists, they get to be persecuted about it, right? And that's a good thing. Facebook at least created the tools for bad PR to be a counterweight against lies, if that makes sense. At the same time, the fact remains, Facebook is super duper powerful. And is it good to be any one company that has this sort of power and reach and leverage? That's the zoom out question, right? It's like, let's not go back and forth on the trade-off and argue each other to death because we could argue both sides of this. And we, we, if we podcasted long enough about this question, we would probably switch sides multiple times without even realizing we did it, right? And so that's actually a clue. Actually, maybe we need to step back and see if there's something larger going on here. Right. I feel like we've had something of this discussion and like I have been informed about this with like one person having a lot of power in the media in Australia, which was Murdoch and like his ability to influence elections. And he started off as this idealistic person. Some of his early speeches does not sound like the owner of Fox News today. The fact is the power exists. It creates the opportunity for it to be used in this way. And yes, Zuckerberg, Facebook have this council that will independently tell them fairness or whatever. But like you said, the structure is fundamentally tyrannical and he can just choose to ignore them. The notion that he's pointing to China as a reason to keep Facebook intact like they're powerful. We should be powerful too. This is like the, we get attacked and we adopt the principles of the attackers. Like this feels like the Patriot Act justification. Like instead of like doubling down on the principles that we stand for, we adopt the principles of the threat. And in that sense, that allows whatever it is, this external threat to win. And so the way I come at the question that you just posed, and I agree with the framing that there's the broader issue here is that there are things that make liberal democracies great and having huge volumes of centralized power is not one of them. Yeah, I agree. And let me walk through a couple of things that you said there, though, if you don't mind, because I think that the point about you know Zuckerberg framing Facebook as a counterweight against China, it's on its surface immensely irritating. <laughs> it's like, oh, isn't that convenient? But I think it's worth pointing out again, just to play devil's advocate here for a moment. It's very easy with the U.S.-China thing to get stuck in U.S.-China frames only, right? This is a worldwide issue, right? Probably the biggest frame of competition is Southeast Asia, right? Where it's a real question as to which sort of social networks and which sort of companies and which broader value systems, to borrow Zuckerberg's point, are going to prevail. And in that sense, sort of having a strong Facebook, like, yeah, we can complain about Facebook and all its problems, and you've complained about this plenty, you know, Facebook being the internet in these countries. What is it better to have Facebook be the internet or for WeChat to be the internet? 
right? Like it's suddenly that question gets a little bit more complicated when you talk about other parts of the world. Again, I ultimately do push back on that for the reason that I said, because the corporate governance aspect of Facebook and the fact there is no accountability to me. To have our free speech champion be structured such a way is, to me, deeply problematic and it's sort of bridge too far, a violation of what it actually free expression does mean. So I do sort of reject this argument. That said, it's worth stepping out of the U.S.-China framing into other parts of the world to appreciate there is some aspect here that is worth at least acknowledging and keeping in mind. I mean, I hear you. I do think, though, the rest of the world is watching. And the TikTok versus Facebook thing, I mean... I hear you. I'm not necessarily sure that I want the search results for Hong Kong all around the world to disappear the Hong Kong protests. At the same time, the rest of the world is watching the way that the US reacts. And I feel like the US response to this, recognizing that there's a media company that's effectively being controlled by Beijing. We're also framing this as an either or, like either we leave Facebook intact or TikTok globally dominates. Like, I think we should do something about Facebook and I think we should do something about TikTok and what that represents is coming out of China. And I think the place to start is in the United States. And I think the rest of the world will watch as a result. I agree with that. And I think that that's a signal that we're now operating at the right level of discourse where we can actually say, no, we can do both, right? We're out of the world of trade-offs. We can be in an environment where, yes, we acknowledge that having, you know, strong U.S. companies being available broadly, that's an important thing. But also we can clean up our own house here. And what that means for Facebook, you know, there's a lot more to explore in this context. I think that certainly there's questions of the hold on advertising that is entailed one company holding all these sorts of things. But the broader point is that this debate needs to be less about these smaller, narrower issues, where those smaller, narrow issues be misinformation on Facebook or whether they be the economics or the current sort of laws as constructed. And I do think there needs to be a broader conversation about what are our values? What sort of world do we want to be in? What sort of power do we want to allow to accrue to one thing? And this has lots of interesting implications for how we're going to deal with this. What it means is addressing this. We talked about this in the context of China, right? One thing I pushed back on you on was, yes, I agree there's a collective action problem, but we will solve that collective action problem in the long run by building a political consensus broadly, right? And that will lead to stuff down the road and how we do it. It's the same thing here. And this is a mistake I think a lot of Facebook critics make. They are trying to go via antitrust or via the Department of Justice, wherever it might be, and trying to shoehorn their objections to Facebook into these existing legal remedies that don't really apply and don't really fit. And the solution to Facebook, the solution to the centralization of power, the solution to the existence of these trade-offs that only exist because this company is so powerful has to be a democratic solution, right? We're fighting for democracy, which means we need to deal with it democratically, which means via the political process. It means not trying to seize the authority for yourself, where that authority be the Justice Department, where that authority be you decide what Facebook does, right? So many of the Facebook's critics feel like their main objection to Facebook is that they want Facebook's power for themselves, right? No, my objection is that the power exists at all. And so what needs to be done, if that's your concern, is building up a broad-based political consensus that, no, this is not actually 
actually how we want things to be organized. We need to change something. And that means passing laws. Is passing laws hard? Yes, it's hard. We just talked about it. It's hard. It's hard by design. But that means putting in the work to convince people that actually, no, we need to think about this differently. This is more important. We did it 100 years ago when it came to antitrust laws and and the big sort of cartels. And it's something that needs to be done again. And again, maybe it's not even antitrust. Maybe it's something new. Antitrust didn't exist until 115 years ago, right? Maybe it's something new, a new way of thinking about the world that is going to organize as the third estate, as this touching of everyone is now technically possible, let's at least make sure the power that flows from that goes in the correct direction, not to centralize control, but to sort of decentralize empowerment. And is that going to have other knock-on effects and other issues in the long run? It will. It will. But the world is changing. We can't be the Catholic Church issuing a papal bull saying we're going to approve every book. Sorry, we're past that point. We need to accept this and decide what sort of world Given these changes, do we want to live in and actually go through and convince people of that point and now look at China wistfully as look how they get to tell everyone what to do? No, I reject that completely. You know what this is reminding me of? This is reminding me of the criticism, and it was most represented, I think, by Tim Cook a couple of years ago of Facebook, which is like, we don't sell your data, they sell your data. And it was a shortcut to scoring cheap political points, but it wasn't a representation of the truth. And the problem with taking the shortcut, whether that's trying to back in existing laws where they don't fit, is that you're going to get to the point of trying to apply them. They're not going to work. You're not going to get the outcome you want. In your rush to haste, in your rush to score the quip, you're not going to get the right outcome because you haven't thought this through from first principles. And the thing that you so desperately want is going to slip through your fingers. No, it's so well put. It's a great analogy. And that's exactly how I'd frame it. Like there are no shortcuts here. Like the implication of this being so large. And the reason why it was worth it to go back hundreds of years to think about how the world changed then is the existing tools we have aren't sufficient. And if Our goal here, if we do hold free expression to be of high value, and if we do hold democratic values broadly to be of high value, it's time to use those values. It's time to leverage our free expression to achieve a democratic consensus to make the level of changes that are necessary to manage this. Yeah, agreed. That's what makes it special to live in one of these places, right? It is exactly right. The thirst for authoritarianism is a frightening one because it can live right under your noses. I mean, the degree to which people want to tell Facebook what to do and would be totally fine with Facebook if applied to their personal political preferences is frightening. Yeah, this is weird. Like more and more, I find myself defending them, but I think you're right. Right. It's like in the narrow sense, you defend them because you see the authoritarianism in the sort of opposition to Facebook. The principle, right? Yeah, that's right. And actually, Facebook deserves more credit for pushing back against that authoritarianism. So it's like you defend Facebook in the small picture, but it's the ultimate indictment of Facebook in the large picture. That that they're even in this position. That's right. That the means of authoritarianism exist at all. That's the issue. And to their credit, they haven't leveraged them. But the possibility that they even could, that's actually the real problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's been heavy these past two weeks, but I think it's been good. I think they all tie together, right? For me, the whole China thing, it's led to a lot of rethinking, not just about the China issue in particular, but all this sort of stuff. And I mentioned this kind of in passing in our China episode that I haven't been very 
particularly explicitly political. I certainly express what I believe. And I think you could extrapolate from that into various political positions. But in this point, like if the whole point of the China episode is that it is a question of values, then what happens if you actually take that seriously in everything else, right? Like my thinking about Zuckerberg's speech, my thinking about writing this article, going back to thinking about what is the structure of the US government, what were the motivations to do that? That's triggered by a re-emphasis on values. And what are the implications of that? I think it's a timely discussion. I think it's a good one too. Well, I'm sure it will be continued sooner rather than later. Yeah. Very good. Well, it was a good one. Uh, so we'll see. I like the sort of pace we're doing here. We didn't do one last week. We've talked about Google and Home Assistants and all that sort of stuff plenty of times. Um, <laughs> we'll, so we will be back. We'll see when it is. Sounds good. Very good. Well, have a good night and I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye.